Hello and welcome to the Take 15 podcast from CFA Institute. I am Lauren Foster and this is the show where we bring you short conversations with some of the world's most interesting and accomplished people. On today's episode, where is Alpha lost and found? What are some of the most common behavioral mistakes that investors make? And how can investors generate behavioral alpha? To walk us through all of this, I'm joined by Claire Flynn-Levy. She is founder and CEO of Essential Analytics, a fintech company that uses behavioral data analytics to help professional investors do more of what they're good at and less of what they're not. The firm's software analyzes historical trade data and identifies behavioral patterns and shows managers where their skills lie and where they're getting in their own way. I hope you enjoy our conversation. So Claire Flynn-Levy, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. So it's really great to see you again, even though it's virtual, and I'm really thrilled to have you uh, on the episode today. So you sit really at, at a fascinating nexus between investing and human behavior, and also between sort of luck and skill, and really trying to disentangle those two when it comes to performance and process. So I'd love to sort of jump right in with the, the what and the how. So what inspired you to found Essential Analytics? And how does your company help investment professionals make smarter decisions? Well, so I, I was a portfolio manager myself for many years, and I was fortunate enough to be a tech stock picker during the internet bubble. Um, which was a great experience. And I <laughs> made a lot of great decisions, or so my performance said. My performance was very good, and I won all the awards and you know, was um, lauded as being a, a highly skilled fund manager. And then the bubble burst, and it was much harder for me to make money in the same way that I had been making money. Uh, and, and that's not necessarily it didn't come as a surprise, but the question I was faced with was, what should I be doing differently? You know, how do I get, if I'm not getting the outcome I want from doing the same thing I have been doing, how, how do I get the outcome I want? I need to do something differently. Otherwise, isn't the definition of insanity doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result? Um, and, and nobody could really answer the question for me. They could show me performance attribution that decomposed the outcome and tried to trace it back to, you know, what exposures I had held that had resulted in it. Um, but I, I'm somebody who wants to work with what I have control over, and I want to understand what is it that I'm doing that is, is causing this positive or, or negative outcome. Um, and it seemed to me that the, the data to get to the bottom of that was there. You know, all fund managers have been capturing electronically every trading decision that they've made for decades now. You know, this, that technology has been in place for a very long time, albeit for settlement reasons mostly. Um, but if you analyzed the historical decisions that a fund manager had made and, and start with only in a trade because that's what you have data about, surely you would be able to detect patterns in their behavior, if you had enough trades, um, that would be informative to them. That was the that was the premise, um, and it seemed to me that I wasn't the only person who would benefit from having this information. You know, it it's a it's a win win win. 
for the fund manager, it's a win because with that information, you have the potential to improve on a continuous basis. For the firm that employs you, you know, that's a win. If you improve, that's a good thing. And for your end investor, of course, uh, if you improve, that's a good thing. Um, and so it, it, to me, it seems it's so fundamental to the entire active fund management industry to have this information that it, it made sense to start a company solely with the purpose of, of providing it. And so that's what I did. Interesting. So can you also tell us a bit about how you actually go about collecting that data and what you're seeing in that data and how you're doing the feedback loop back to managers? Sure. Uh, well, so so I mentioned we start with trade data, trade and, and holdings data, really, because what we're interested in is um, the the sort of zero to zero life of every position that's ever been in your portfolio, the sort of game tape for every idea you've ever had. And, and you know, game tape is a, a useful analogy because we've seen how analytics have transformed sport, you know, whether that's golf or football or tennis, you know, it starts with having a recording of, of what took place of the game in that case. Um, and having the ability to zoom in on each particular movement that the athlete has made, you know, and, and then find the commonalities between the successful versions of that movement and the unsuccessful versions of that movement, and then use that information uh, to help the athlete improve. And that's basically what we're doing for a fund manager. We're starting with the decisions they made that resulted in a trade, and we're looking at uh, well, we're decomposing them into different types of decisions. So in, in fund management, usually people are very focused on the picking decision. You know, that was a great idea to have Amazon in your portfolio or whatever. Um, that is a very important decision. There's no doubt about it. But that's not the only decision a fund manager makes. They make an entry timing decision. You know, when do I start buying this? How much do I buy? How quickly do I buy it? They make decisions about adding and trimming their position during its life, and then they make a, a set of decisions on the way out about when to get out and how fast to get out. Each one of those, it's like a forehand, a backhand, a volley. You know, these are different strokes that the manager is taking in different conditions. You know, different sectors, countries, uh, share price directions, volatility uh, rates. Um, which ones does this fund manager do well repeatedly, and which ones does this fund manager? do not so well. And, and to come to that, that conclusion rapidly, we use machine learning, um, but guided by a lot of domain expertise to understand, you know, first of all, what does doing it well even look like? Um, and then uh, to understand what, what are common mistakes that people make so that you can detect them. So let's spend a little bit of time in that sort of not so well column, the, the common mistakes. You must see a lot of mistakes over the portfolios that you're looking at. Uh, what are some of the most common errors that you see fund managers making? And I guess the flip side of that would be, you know, what are one or two decisions that can really have a big impact on performance um, that have the biggest potential for improvement? Um, yeah, well, so we're, we're in a fortunate position in that we work with a lot of different equity fund managers running all different types of equity strategy around the world. And so we can do uh, analysis across all of them. Uh, so when we're working one-to-one, -one, we might detect a certain 
pattern um, or area of skill or, or lack thereof. But it's fascinating when you look at it across all of them. Um, we recently did a uh, an analysis like that that showed that the stock picking decision is the one where there's the most commonality in terms of, of drivers of alpha, you know, which is not really that surprising. You would expect that to be the case. But while we found that every fund manager we looked at had a driver of alpha, so had a type of decision that they made and a context in which they were making it that consistently resulted in um, alpha generation or alpha destruction, it was different for, for most of them. So it wasn't that all fund managers make all their money out of you know, large cap stock picking or whatever. Um, they all did something a little bit different, but stock picking in terms of decision type ended up being the, the most common uh, driver of alpha. Um, but what we, what we also found in there was that whilst um, those fund managers who sort of fell into that bucket had a tendency to make their best picking decisions in the names where they put the most money to work, which is good, you know, again, you would hope that that was the case. They also had the tendency to make their worst picking decisions on the companies where they put almost as much money to work, not quite the most amount of money to work, but like that sort of almost ran, also ran category, um, which can end up forming a large part of a, a portfolio. And so uh, what we associate that with is a lack of conviction um, or a lack of full conviction, which is a really interesting area. So there's, there's a, a piece around holding things where you don't have full conviction for reasons, you know, you can come up with a million reasons why you hold it anyway. Um, but that tends to be an area where people destroy value. Uh, but another one that, that uh, again, we, we found through doing research across all of our different uh, clients is a tendency uh, to round trip on investment ideas. Um, so this is something we associate with the endowment effect, which is a common behavioral bias around, you know, overvaluing something by virtue of your own ownership of it. And what we're talking about in this case is uh, we'll look at for every position you've ever held, what is the sort of life cycle of the alpha generation in that position look like? Did you, did you do, did you get all the juice in the beginning or did it all come at the end or did it come evenly throughout its life? And if you do that for every single idea that a, a fund manager's ever held, you can then, you know, find what does the average one look like or the median one look like, and what we, and then you could look at that across all different managers. And we found a bunch of different profiles, but um, but the one that sort of won out in the end was this idea of the round trip, where the manager makes a lot of alpha in the first three quarters of the the life of the position. You know, we, we found it, it was over 120 basis points of alpha on average in that first 75% of the lifetime of the position. So that's way more than, you know, the difference between active and passive fees. You know, so to me that says, okay, these active fund managers, they are generating enough alpha. The problem is in the last 25% of the life of, of their positions, they're tending to give it all back. And, and so... There's this, you know, why does that happen? Well, 
they fall in love. These are companies that they've had a great relationship with. They've made them a lot of money. They know the management team really well. You know, you, the closer and you get to an investment, and the more, the more you like it, the more it's done for you. Uh, the easier it is to stop asking the really hard questions, and the easier it is to not see when the cracks start showing, and and not realize that the the party's over until it's too late. And by then, you feel like an idiot because you made all this money and now you gave it all back. You know, so that's a hugely destructive value situation to be in. And if we can just help you not do that, help you catch yourself before the, the decline and ask yourself those tough questions that, that you wouldn't necessarily remember to ask, um, what we found is that you, we can help people mitigate that bias and actually um, stop themselves from round tripping as much, which is massively valuable to them. Yeah. I'm so glad you brought up this idea of conviction. Uh, we had a guest a few weeks ago. Um, who talked about how conviction in an idea is one of the most underappreciated elements of a successful investment process. So I'm wondering if we, we know that conviction uh, is an issue or lack of conviction. So how do you help your clients think about conviction or build better conviction in the positions that they're holding? We're, we're actually just... Um starting to do a workshop specifically about this because we've noticed that a lot of clients um, struggle with it. it. You know, everyone has this idea that conviction is, is core to their active investment process, but what do they even mean by that? You know, when, your definition of conviction in mind might be two totally different things, or, you know, even if we agreed on what the term means, we might not measure it in the same way. We might not use the same scale of measurement. Or even if we use the same scale, you know, my version of a four and your version of a four might be two totally different things. And and even if that wasn't the case, even if we agreed about that, a four for me today and a four for me last Wednesday might not be the same thing. <laughs> you know, it's massively subjective. Conviction is is held up as this, you know, very important piece, and yet there's very little consistently or consistency or objectivity involved. Um, so, so what we do with this workshop is, is to help teams figure out what do we even mean? What are we even talking about here? And, and what commonalities are there amongst us in terms of how we define conviction? Um, and then we, we and, and this is done in conjunction with uh, Denise Scholl, who I'm sure you, you know, um, She's one of the, the top uh, investor coaches on Wall Street, and, and we work closely with her. But she uh, has a lot of um, science uh, backing up this idea that the more granular you can get about your conviction, you know, the, the tiny little increments of it, the better you perform. And it's about understanding the information that this feeling of conviction, whatever it you know, however you put that, um, it, it contains information and the, and the differences between, you know, the intensity of those feelings contains information. And if you can put, if you, if you know that and you can tune into it, you can make much clearer decisions, um, and much more objective assignments about your conviction and the given, uh, name. But ultimately I think, you know, putting to one side, how do you, how do you define conviction and what does that, 
you know, how do you stay consistent about it? We found that that our clients have got one of the biggest changes we've seen people make, you know, over and over again has been to look at the analysis that we're showing them and then say, yeah, I don't know why I have all those small positions in there. You know, often you you can see very clearly in the analysis, making all your money out of these big, high conviction names, and then you've got all this sort of static in the middle, and it none of it's none of them are big losers, but you add them all together, and they're just destroying value. And when you think about how much energy is going into making the decisions around all of that, it's just a total waste. So if you could, you know, keep your risk exposures in check and, and, you know, usually people have all those positions because they think they're mitigating risk, but, um, that's not necessarily true. If you, if you can be satisfied that your, your risk exposures, um, don't suffer from it, you can knock out a lot of the low conviction stuff and save yourself a lot of alpha. And we've seen that happen time and again. So maybe that's a good pivot towards sort of decision-making. I know that you've written about this uh, on your blog. Um, and if I think about sort of COVID-19 and I think of a couple of words that seem to come up all the time, one is unprecedented and, and one is resilience. And I know that you've blogged about sort of resilience in decision-making. And so I'd love to just focus on that for a minute. Um, what are smart people missing when it comes to uh, decision-making? And what are your tips for helping uh, portfolio managers build better resilience around decision-making? I mean, it's actually really simple, um, at least to talk about and, and less simple to do. <laughs> and that is to create an actual decision-making process that is documented, you know, that involves a checklist, ideally, like to, to put measures into place for it to guide you so that when emotions are running high and, you know, you, you have to assume that you're going to be affected emotionally by the volatility of markets, by the unpredictability of, of a pandemic situation, <laughs> you know, like everything that we've been dealing with, um, not to mention you're now at home and your kids are screaming in the background and, you know, there's all of that. Um, it's a bit like being a pilot in a cockpit. They have a binder with a set of, of checklists and they go through one by one and they check that they've done all of the things so that they don't forget anything and so that they're not making judgment calls that are clouded by emotion you know, in the heat of the moment. And an investor can do the exact same thing um, if they take the time to start with to create those checklists and if they ensure that they actually do follow them when the time comes. So it's a, it's a mixture that in execution, it's a mixture of um, prioritizing the process and saying, no, this really, it's not just my marketing material where I talk about how important my process is. It really is going to be that important. So I'm going to actually invest time in setting it all out, you know, in a way that, that creates a, a workflow process for me. Um, and, and I'm going to, you know, put that first. Um, and budget the, the requisite time. But I'm also going to put measures in place that make it easy for me to follow this process, you know, in real life. Um, ideally, measures that push the process to me rather than force me to go and find the binder where I wrote all this stuff down and follow it when that's the last thing I want to do because emotionally I'm, you know, very riled up and I just want to act. Um, and that's a big part of, of, that's the other half of what we do at Essential. The, the first part being the analysis and, you know, holding up a, a, 
a digital mirror, a data-driven mirror, and say, this is what you look like, which is very revealing and interesting. Um, but that in and of itself doesn't make you do a better job later. You know, it's very hard to remember that in the heat of the moment. What you need is for technology to be able to remind you of the process you said you wanted to follow the next time you were in that situation. Um, and that, we find, really does result in positive behavioral change that translates directly into greater alpha generation. So little behavioral nudges, I presume? That yeah, that's what we call them. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So perhaps yeah. you can talk a bit about sort of uh, behavioral alpha, because I know that's something you've also talked about. Just expand on that a little bit uh, for our listeners. Well, so the, the, you know, these days, generating alpha is hard, right? I mean, it was never that easy, but not in our lifetime, but um, it is harder than it's ever been. And uh, to believe that you have a shot of doing it consistently, you have to believe that either you're smarter than everyone else, or you've got better information than anyone else, or something else. You know, and, and the thing is, in this day and age, it's really hard to be smarter than everyone else. There, there are a lot of smart people around and they can work remotely. And, you know, it, it's it, talent is more fluid than it's ever been before. Um, so good luck being smarter. Then there's the information <laughs> angle. Do I have better information than, than other people? And, you know, in the in the quant world, that's it's a it's a race to, to get more data than everybody else. In the fundamental world, this is a commodity at this point. I mean, it's amazing the information you can now get through alternative data sources. It's it's wild, you know, and it does transform uh, the work of an analyst. But everybody, anybody who's got money can afford to buy data. So the chance that you're going to have an advantage in alpha generation just because you have a better data set than somebody else is pretty slim. Um, and yet, there is still some very low-hanging fruit around alpha generation. This is what we call behavioral alpha. This is the, the alpha that you can generate just by getting out of your own way, just by understanding your own strengths and weaknesses, playing to your strengths, avoiding your weaknesses, mitigating your biases you know, to the extent that you, you're aware of them and, and that you can do that. You can make real alpha out of that. And you know, we, we actually just did an analysis that it's taken, it's taken many years to uh, get to the point where we can do it, to say, what percentage of Essentia clients have, have actually succeeded in generating you know, more alpha per annum on a consistent basis since they started working with us? And the answer is 75% of them. So a lot, a lot of them have managed to improve their performance in a measurable way by playing to their strengths and avoiding their weaknesses. And on average, the amount by which they've done that is 150 basis points a year. 150 basis points a year. That's enormous. You know, if you're in the world of fund management, like every little basis point counts. And if somebody said to you, I could help you outperform by an additional 150 basis points a year, you'd be crazy not to at least have a look at that. You know, but the but the beauty for those people who do engage with that is that not everybody is prepared to go there. It's funny. They're very prepared to buy data and analyze data about other people's behavior. 
But as soon as you you say, why don't you look in the mirror and analyze data about your own behavior? It's like, ooh, that's a little touchy. You know, it's, yeah, it is. It's, it's, you got to be brave to do it. But you, you know, is Roger Federer brave when he looks at the analysis of his tennis matches? Is that how he managed to be the greatest of all time? I think probably it is. You know, you've got to be brave enough to acknowledge what you're not doing well and to lean into the things that you are doing well. And data is the, you know, the starting point for all of that. Mm -hmm. So you've written that you got some great advice back in the 1990s uh, when you were back in London, uh, you're a young fund manager and you were told that great fund managers are made, not born. And that decision-making is something you'll always be able to improve upon. That was obviously great advice and you've certainly lived that in your career. What are some other tips you would have for aspiring or fairly new or even seasoned portfolio managers uh, about their careers? Uh, well, I would definitely recommend that they uh, document as much as they can about, if we're talking about decision making, um, about the decisions that they're making so that they're in a position to uh, potentially analyze that, that data and see what they can do differently uh, to improve. But it's funny, you know, another piece of advice that, that um, I was given many times over, and probably now I give to myself, uh, is at odds with this, this idea. And that, that is, trust your instincts. I get, used to get told, trust your instincts, trust your instincts. And, and maybe that was unique to me being hesitant around, you know, making a decision based on instinct. Um, and to this day, I would say, you shouldn't always trust your instincts. <laughs> you know, we, we've all read a lot of behavioral finance literature that has shown us that our instincts have a way of leading us astray uh, in certain situations. But not all situations. There are certain situations where your instincts are giving you good information upon which you should act. And, and the only way to know which is which is to document, you know, when your instinct is telling you something document what decision you take and find out later, you know, did I, did I make the right decision? What I've learned about myself over the years is that when I have an instinct about a person, my hit rate is very high. And every time I've, I've, you know, second guessed myself and gone against my instinct, I've lived to regret it. Uh, or almost every time I'm sure it's not a hundred percent, but, um, yeah, I mean, that tells me my instincts are good for something, but they're not, they're definitely not good uh, if, if I'm trying to predict daily price movements or <laughs> something like that. I mean, I've, I've done the math to figure that out too. Um, so don't necessarily ignore your instincts, uh, but the more you can capture about why you're doing what you're doing, what's driving the decision you're making, the more you can prove out to yourself when is the time to listen to my instinct and when is the time to ignore it. So I want to pick up on something you mentioned uh, earlier and just very briefly, you know, we're all working from home um, and I looked on your Twitter profile and I love that in your little profile it says you're a, a flexible working evangelist. And I guess this is, this is your season, right? This is the, the heyday of flexible working. So how is Accenture thinking about uh, work in the present and the future? It's so funny, you know, I, I made that my part of my LinkedIn headline 10 years ago. 
<laughs> 10 years ago, I was a flexible working evangelist. <laughs> and now I, everybody's a flexible working evangelist, I guess. Um, you know, I, I'm so happy that, you know, the side effect of, of the pandemic has been that it's forced everybody to try flexible working because the reason I was an evangelist for it it wasn't that I didn't want to work full time. <laughs> you know, it was that I believe that people perform better when you give them more autonomy. And if you can hire people who you trust and who are grown ups um, and then treat them as such and make sure that you have the right um, you know, practices and, and technology in, in place for communication is obviously extremely important. Um, the, if they can control their own work environment or they can control their own hours, they'll be much happier and they'll work harder, but they'll feel less like it, less like they're working so hard. Um, and that is definitely true. I think, you know, most of us can now attest to it. We're, we're probably doing more work, but we don't feel more exhausted necessarily, you know, or, or if we do, it'll be, you know, for the reason that we're on Zoom for you know, 12 hours a day or whatever and sitting in one place. These are things you can rectify. You don't have to sit in one place all day if you don't want to. Um, you have control. And that is way more satisfying than the sort of you have to be in the office at eight and you leave at six and, you know, we all wear a suit and, and that's what we do. So when I started Essentia, you know, it was on it, it, it had this baked into its DNA. It was always going to be the case that I'd work from home when I felt like it. And if I, if that's good enough for me, that's good enough for everybody. You should all be able to work from home when you feel like it, but let's make sure that we're communicating with each other about when that is. And we have the right setups at home. You know, there can't be any working from home in quotes, like, you know, that's not really working. Like that's not acceptable at all. Um, and that, and that, you know, if you have the right culture uh, in place, the rest just comes with it. It comes very naturally to people. So we were already working very flexibly before this pandemic happened. And has anything really changed for us? I mean, we miss each other. We definitely are looking at, okay, what, is the, what does our office look like when we finally do go back to it? What is it? And it, will it be a place for sitting next to each other while we're working? Probably not. Maybe for certain roles, but for most of us, what we've learned is we just want to brainstorm together and we want to socialize together. And we want to have, you know, team building stuff together. Fine. We can find a space for that. And we can, we can make that happen once we're ready. Um, so we've been fortunate to be in a position to be able to be flexible with property as much as flexible with our own uh, time and, and space. Uh, but I think it's so exciting, exciting for, you know, for a lot of different reasons, but not least uh, exciting in the context of um, more women rising to the, you know, to greater heights in the industry, because lack of flexibility has been something that has held a lot of people back and it held a lot of women back from even considering entering this industry. And, now that that's less of an issue, you know, it opens a lot of doors for a lot of people. Yes, it's definitely an exciting trend. I think people will keep a close eye on the sort of the future of work coming out of the pandemic. Um, are there any other trends, particularly, I guess, fintech trends that you're excited about? Oh, goodness. Fintech trends that I'm excited about. 
Hmm. I'm very interested in the automation of the middle and back office and what AI can do in those areas. You know, having having worked in fund management on the coal face for a really long time myself, I know how many moving parts there are and how much um, how messy the data involved can be and and how complicated trade breaks and settlements and you know all of that stuff can be. And yet, it's not that complicated. It is possible for, to use AI, I think, in in that context, and we're starting to see that happen. Um, so when you look at, at you know the future of fund management in particular, um, we know that that prices have to come down, right? You, you have index funds that are you know massively undercutting everybody else, and everybody else wants to compete. They're going to have to lower their prices, but how can you do that without giving up all of your margin. Uh, well, you could lower your costs. And there's not that, you know, there's a limit to how much cost cutting you can do very immediately, but there are definitely technologies emerging where you can um, reduce costs by eliminating some of the humans. And then not necessarily fire everybody, or you could repurpose it, these people, you know, I mean, alternative data is a good example where, where the AI is, is now gathering the data. That's what the analysts used to do. But now the analyst's job is to know what question to ask of, of the data and to know which data to look at in order to get the answer. So you know, you're, you're just leveling everybody up in terms of the sophistication of, of their job. And in that process, I'm sure some jobs will disappear. Mm -hmm. So I like to end our conversations with what I call the ray of sunshine question. This is something that we started doing in COVID. It's a sort of positive way to sort of end uh, a discussion. And I know that you're excited about the future of work and flexible working. So that aside, what do you think is the, the most positive thing to come out of COVID so far? Oh, well, I, I can see a lot of positive things that have, have come out of it. Um, but I think the, the fact that it, it, it's like the universe has forced us to stop and breathe and and stay home with our loved ones and just be and stop being so busy physically anyway, you know, traveling all over the place. Um, appreciate nature, go for walks, you know, have conversations with people who you were barely seeing because you were never really awake at the same time or you were always traveling or whatever. Um, I think for from a family perspective, I'm so grateful that it happened because I don't think I would have had this extra time with my kids and my and my husband um, to really you know quality time. Um, and I think if if that's happening to all of us or most of us, that can only be a good thing for empathy and for, you know, just values in general around the world. I'm hopeful anyway, if that's the case. Well, on that hopeful note, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. It's always great to see you, Claire, and a pleasure talking to you as always. And you, thank you. Yeah, take care. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes or wherever you're listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts and it helps others find the show. Also, a quick reminder, this podcast isn't intended to provide expert advice on the topics we covered. If you need tax, accounting or legal advice, please consult a professional. I'm Lauren Foster. 
Thanks so much for listening.